Well, question for you, Ryan. Just like, just yeah. gut take. How do you feel about the market? Just gen general sentiment. No, no charts, no numbers. General sentiment. Can I be honest for a minute? Sure. I'm feeling real good about the market. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Bankless Nation. Happy second week of April. We got a hot week for you. Really excited about what we're doing today. And David, what is this episode called? Tell him. Oh, Ryan, it's the Friday Bankless Weekly Roll-Up, where we recap the entire week in crypto, which, like I say, Ryan, is always an ambitious endeavor, yet we persevere nonetheless through the gamut of the news. We, we pack it apart, we, pu we pull it apart, we distill it for you, digest it for you, and download the entire week of crypto all in one episode. Some nice uh, digestion for you, some pre-chewed meat for you, Bankless <laughs> oh, uh, listeners. <laughs> Am I being gross? Hey, look, <laughs> welcome to the East Coast. That was a subject change. How's the East Coast time zone for you? Enjoying Dude, this? I've, it's been a little bit of a shock. All of my West yeah. Coast friends aren't up in the morning, so I want to like get up and start shitposting in Discord, and they're like not awake yet. But then, like you know, uh, we get to start the, the weekly roll-up uh, uh, a lot earlier. It, this is the earliest weekly roll-up you've ever done, Ryan. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I can't believe this is like the crack of dawn, uh, I guess, in, in comparison. But um, I, it's, I love being on the East Coast because mm. I feel like we get a jump start on all of the West Coasters, right? So by the time you've woken up, I'm like, I'm already in work mm -hmm. mode. And I'm like, just although you do wake up really early, so you're pretty yeah, close. But true. like, I, uh, it's nice. You, got, mm -hmm. you get kind of a jump start on the day. Yeah, uh, it, it, what I've noticed about Brooklyn is like coffee shops don't open until like seven thirty or eight, and so oh, I go weird. out in the morning that's and then like I'm waiting for the coffee store to open. It's, this is ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure why that's going on, but anyway, guys, we got a hot week for you on the recap. We're gonna get it back to crypto topics of the week. First of all, inflation eight point five percent. WTF? This is the highest like in forty years or something, David. And when it's reported at eight point five percent, you know it's a little higher than that, Ryan. Oh yeah, you know it's uh, double digits already. We're gonna talk about that. Also, Elon Musk. Last week we told you he was gonna be on Twitter's board. This week, no. He's not, apparently. <laughs> but now he wants to buy all of the Twitter, 100%. Thing. Okay, we'll talk about that. Uh, also, uh, the merge, the Ethereum merge. Sad face, not happening in June. So we're going to talk about that. Some people mm -hmm. are calling this a delay. I think we have a different take on this. Uh, also, Zuckerberg's metaverse. You know, he's working on this metaverse thing, renamed mm -hmm. his company. Mm -hmm. uh, you will be shocked at what markup he is charging on NFTs. In the no, I don't think Zuckerverse. I will, Ryan. <laughs> I think I, I won't be shocked at all. <laughs> well, uh, yes, probably listeners will not be shocked, but it is uh, it is surprising, it's a, it's I will a say. It's high number. Also, uh, tax memes, okay, oh, just to make you feel good. Memes. Look, yeah, I know, because this is coming out on the 15th, and like taxes are due either today or the 18th. Uh, mm -hmm. I can't remember. So uh, we want to just make you feel good about the pain that you just suffered compiling your crypto taxes. So we got some memes in store for you. Uh, we're going to get right to it. Uh, markets, though. Bitcoin price. We up? We down? We sideways? Uh, we're down. We're down, Ryan. We started down? the week at $43,000, $43,500. Uh, we fell down to a low of $39,500, so broke through mm. that $40,000 number, which is the, a good number to not break through, but we are back above it. We're back above it at where we are now at basically $40,100. Um, defending that $40,000 number, if we could keep on defending that uh, pretty well, that'd be nice. You know, dangerously well, close to below 40000 It's an interesting week to look at crypto prices, right? Because we're going to get to it. The 8.5% inflation we were talking about, that happened this week. 
And so it's been interesting to see how Bitcoin and Ether and other crypto assets respond to this. But how about ETH? How has it responded to some of this news? And I think the news came out like, was it Monday-ish? Yeah. About inflation mm -hmm. worries, Monday, yep. Tuesday-ish, uh, Tuesday, something I think, like this? Something like that, yeah. Mm -hmm. You can see down. We're right. down. But what's ETH for the week? ETH is down 2.5% this week. Bitcoin was down, is down 5%. ETH is down 2.5%. I wrote these numbers in. They actually might be down a little bit more than that. So it might be something like 55 and 3% um, Bitcoin and ETH. ETH started the week at $3,200, hit a low just below $3,000. Just like Bitcoin is defending 40,000, Ether is defending 3,000. Uh, we are currently at $3,020, keeping our head right above water. Um, not terribly comfortable, but defended nonetheless. It's a good day for above 3K. I'm going to say it every time, David. Uh, <laughs> ETH Bitcoin ratio, what's the ratio looking like? Yeah, ETH Bitcoin ratio up 2.5%. Yeah, so we are at 0 0.0555. Or excuse me, okay. what did I just say? 0 0.07555. Um, okay, up 2.5%. I'm not like, you know, bull market appetite still on the table. Um, yeah, it's so, definitely on the table. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look at the six month here. What are we looking at in the six month? Uh, go to the, go to the one year. Go to the one year, not the year to date, because it's still so early. Go to the one year. Yeah, like you okay. know, you uh, know, like we're I, trending higher, trending higher. We're cool with it. We're cool interesting. With it. All right, so the the market's not saying bear territory right now. Right. The market's no. kind of undecided, which is mm -hmm. super interesting. How about uh, the well, question total? for you, Ryan? Just like just yeah. gut take. How do you feel about the market? Just gen general sentiment. No no charts, no difference. numbers. General sentiment. Can I be honest for a minute? Sure. I'm feeling real good about the market. Yeah, <laughs> I am. Own. I'm feeling really like maybe like maybe I'm too bullish. And that 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 worries me a little bit. Like the mm -hmm. fact that the fact that inflation and kind of these, you know, these Fed shocks, right? Like the news has sunk in. I mean, the mm -hmm. Fed is going to take some pretty drastic action here in the mm -hmm. coming months. They're going to have to raising rates they're gonna start selling their bonds we got into a whole episode uh with us about crypto with um with dan moorhead where we mm -hmm. talk about this that episode is coming out not next monday but the monday after right because uh, vitalik's coming out next monday so yeah you know. yeah yeah you know vitalik gets the spot first right. but uh the, the episode with dan was fantastic as mm -hmm. well anyway um i think that i would have expected with ukraine with all of the all of the macro things happening this year, I would have uh, expected it to, to tank hard, mm -hmm. and it's not. It's actually mm -hmm. becoming a little less correlated with the stock market, right? So, mm -hmm. look, there could be some other shocks in store for us this year, right? Um, you know, a big, a big uh, hit on some event. Something could happen with the stock market, and the bottom falls out of that. Who knows? I think it will take crypto down with it, but I think our recovery might be stronger and faster. And it's not certain that all of those things will happen either. So uh, I'm feeling pretty good about it. And I don't know if I trust my uh, my instinct or feeling on that. But like, look, don't listen to me. I just, I'm a, I'm a long-term holder about these things. So I get less worried about what happens in the week to week and the month to month. What's your take? Yeah, yeah I, I would agree. Like the longer post, uh, post you know, the, the market has definitely internalized and accepted the Fed's actions from, from what I've gathered. Like we, we've, 
had like basically the whole entire year to come to terms with the Fed is going to raise interest rates and offload their balance sheet. And right. so even like, and the news this week was that like, oh, inflation was even hotter. The Fed was is going to um, even more aggressively offload their balance sheet. And so we went from like where we were at like 3,500 down to 3,000 more or less or something like that in the last two weeks. And so like, you know, if that's what it's going to be when we find out that it's going to be even faster than it is, then yeah. fine. Like, I'm we'll take like, it. Like, is that I'll all you it. got? Yeah, like, like I'll I'll take a gut punch of three thousand five hundred down to three thousand. Like sure. if, if if this is how we are reacting to an acceleration of the bearishness, then like that's fine. Like three thousand is is cool. Because uh, here's the here's the other thing. Macro is the only thing holding crypto down at the moment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I firmly believe that. Right. That's why we are kind of in this crap territory. If everything was going swimmingly from a macro perspective, I think we would be hitting higher highs over all-time highs right now yeah i i definitely agree with that for sure um the, actually it's uh, the episode that we did with dan moorhead is just really timely because dan moorhead was a macro investor before he became a crypto investor and he realized in 2013 how macro of a conversation crypto is going to be so he he pivoted pantera from a macro fund to a crypto fund the timing for that episode couldn't be better um yeah. and so we but we got to put out vitalik first but if though for those who subscribe to the premium feed who are paid subscribers of bankless you'll get that early oh. access earlier in the week yeah let's see if we can mm. do that earlier like uh mm-hmm. earlier in the week next yeah, week yeah monday we'll tuesday we wednesday that. yeah mm-hmm. thank you bankless editors uh well yes. let's take a look at the uh cryptocurrency global chart we don't usually mm-hmm. do this but i think we should start doing it from now on david so uh what is the crypto market cap total this week yeah yeah we started the week at 2.08 trillion and we are currently at 1.96 trillion okay. uh so quick math we lost uh, a little bit over 0.1 trillion dollars yeah uh, we lost half, a little over 100 billion is that a quarter cap. of an elon we lost one quarter of an elon <laughs> oh my god <gasps> Oh, that is a quarter. Oh, he's so rich. Am I right? Oh, my God. I think it's uh, close. I don't know. I think it's pretty close. Don't uh, even I was. I wrote down these numbers right before like we lost another like 1% in the market. So I think the markets are down. The total crypto market cap is down a little bit over 4%. Uh, yeah. do, writing down start, how, how, how fast should, these markets move, like the numbers get inaccurate from when I write them down 40 minutes ago to where they should are Should we now. start uh, deni- like uh, talking about these in terms of how many Elons we lost? <laughs> well, the, U, the U.S. dollar is becoming a terrible frame of reference, so like, we might as well. Uh, Elon, come on the show, though, seriously. Uh, anyway, uh, ETH gas. That's ETH gas, gone down a little yeah. bit this week. Am I right yeah, about that? Yeah, last, last, last week, the uh, average gas price was 45 guay. We are down to 38 guay. Again, always correlated with prices. Prices go up, gas goes up. Prices go down, gas goes down. Price at the pump going down. Uh, well, let's talk about what that means. Here's here's some market insight from from Dom. Have you ever thought about what gas price would make ETH actually deflationary in a post-merge world? Uh, I hope you understood what I just said there in the post-merge because David and I have been talking about it for so long. If you don't, go check out a YouTube a video that we released on kind of what the merge is. Uh, but anyway, Dom says there is an easy way to calculate when at what gas price, gas price ETH is deflationary. And to do that, you take the number of active validators in the beacon chain, you calculate the square root, multiply that by a number, 0.0239. Those don't matter. What's really interesting is, is these numbers right here, which is uh, depending on the number of validators you have, the more validators you have, I guess the like the higher gas fees need to be to make it deflationary, but they're all still super low. And I think we're at about uh, 
3,600 validators no, on the three, beacon 360,000 validators. Oh, 360,000 validators, excuse me. And then 13,000 validators, more coming in the queue as well. Which means about uh, any time gas fees are, yeah, 14, 15 guay. Mm-hmm. Um, above 14 or 15 guay, we're burning ETH. In, That's the in threshold. post-merge, in post-merge, in not post-merge current state. post-merge world, not current state. So that means anytime gas fees are above 15 guay, we're burning. If they're ever below 15 guay, then we're not burning ETH in a post-merge mm-hmm. world. But my God, they're always going to be above 15 it's, guay, aren't they? The, yeah, for sure. And the, uh, according to the Ethereum researchers, they all feel comfortable with about... 20 to 30 million Ether staked for maximum Ethereum security in its like final form. Like 30, 30 million ETH staked, it's going to be really nice when we have a very large layer two ecosystem because they're all going to need that security. So it's like, like 20%-ish of all ETH supply. Yeah, exactly. Like 30, 30 million ETH is going to be about what you see on the screen at 1 million validators, right? Like 1 million yeah. validators times 32, three, like 3.2 million Ether, or yeah, 3.2 million Ether staked. No, 32 million ether staked. Excuse me, which is like like yeah, 25-ish percent of all ether. And so, and as for just for people that don't know, the more ether that is staked to the proof of stake network, uh, the Ethereum protocol issues a little bit more in total. Aggregate yield goes down because that that what is issued gets spread out by more people. But the Ethereum protocol ramps up a little bit the total amount of issuance just to have a balance, just to have an equilibrium. So at maturity, what this means is that we're looking about 24 guay perhaps for that threshold for in the long-term equilibrium of Ethereum, 24 guay is the burn ratio over the long-term. It's always going to be over 24 guay. We're going to be burning. We're going to be burning time. all the time. Sometimes we're going to be burning massive amounts because yeah. we predict gas fees on the Ethereum main chain to go up and up and up, up and up only. because mm-hmm. we are on this progress of first gas is being consumed by users, then gas starts getting consumed more by smart contracts, eventually gas will be entirely consumed. Ethereum block space will be consumed by layer twos. As the model here is we won't actually have users, individuals like like you and I on the Ethereum main chain, unless we're like super whales. We'll be doing our stuff on layer two right. and posting, the layer twos will be posting, purchasing gas from Ethereum. So gas fees are just gonna go up. So always gonna be burning in the future. Even the Ethereum whales probably won't be on the Ethereum L1 because all the utility is going to be on the layer twos. Totally, totally, Mm -hmm. exactly. We're going to be moving to Brooklyn, away from Mm -hmm. Manhattan. Right, David? (laughs) Nice, nice. Uh, Okay, uh, itchy token. There's an itchy token (laughs) collapse. Like, I don't know why we're talking about this other than it's just a big, like, 99% uh, DeFi debacle. Maybe there's some lessons here. What are are the lessons here? It went from 650 million market cap to 10 million in 12 hours. That's pretty painful. What happened? Yeah, over half a billion dollars just got deleted in 12 hours. Uh, So this was a a brand new token that was coming out, which was going to help uh, produce a bunch of new stable coins, um, kind of just like kind of democratizing the ability to produce new stable coins. Um, and the, what, what happened is that there was a Rari fuse pool, fuse pool number 136, uh, that was made for the Ichi token. And the Ichi token, dis, uh, the, the team that was managing this Rari fuse pool, because as this Ichi token was like mooning, basically, it went from like zero to 600 million plus in market cap in like a month or so, maybe a little bit less. Um, 
since since March. So yeah, yeah, about a month actually. So like you know, very very strong price action up until the time it went to zero. But basically, yeah. okay, the the team with the Rari Fuse Pool, they made a Fuse Pool so they could borrow against the Ichi token, kind of like being able to use it in Compound, right? But for Fuse. Um, but Compound doesn't allow you to do this because of risks. And this is going to be a great example as to why Compound doesn't allow any asset to come onto its collateral. Uh, they increased the loan-to-value limit on the Ichi Fuse Pool to 85%. So if you put in $1 million worth of Ichi token, you could get $850,000 in stablecoins back, which is a very large loan-to-value loan to ratio, which is largely reserved for only the most liquid of assets, Bitcoin and Ether, basically that's it. And even with Ether, I'd say 85% is still a large amount, even with Bitcoin, kind of reserved only for stables, really, if you want to be hyper-secure. But this very illiquid, very brand new token that has just recently had a very large run-up in price was given an 85% loan-to-value ratio. So some users were making significant loans uh, and allowing them to borrow stables, buy Ichi tokens, put Ichi tokens in the Fuse pool to buy more stables, basically leveraging up on Ichi tokens. And so there was a ton of leverage of Ichi tokens with outstanding US do dollars being borrowed. And it's really important to note that just because you are leveraging up on Ichi tokens doesn't mean that there's significant amount of liquidity there. Uh, so there's very little ability for if there a, uh, a sell event hap uh, were to happen for that price to stay stable. There's no liquidity on the Ichi tokens. Uh, and so as soon as there was a blip in the downwards price movement of the Ichi tokens, a, a, a massive cascading liquidation happened. Uh, and so uh, as soon as the price of Ichi moved by 15% from the highs, the protocol liquid, liquidated basically every single Ichi token that it had in its, its results, which is why, how it went to zero, right? There was not enough liquidity to repay the pools, and so the Ichi token went down to, to zero. And so like this, there's a lesson here. No, there's a lesson in don't take too much collateral or don't take too much leverage, especially on an Ill illiquid brand new token with very little price discovery. But right. also like in theory, like this itchy token, this democratization of the ability to mint stable coins, that could, that's a viable product that could have worked just fine. But what happened was that there was a very irresponsible team and a degen community that caused the token price to implode, causing the project to implode. So on one hand, we have this viable project and then the, on the other hand, we have these uh, irresponsible team and degen traders that, that blew up the project. And so my lesson, I love this lesson. The lesson here is culture matters, Ryan. Like if you have a fundamentals of a project, but it's that fun and the fundamentals of the project are strong, but you have an irresponsible team and a degen community, it'll wreck the project. Culture matters. And that is my yeah. takeaway. Look, man, they basically burnt down their own house. And right. what's interesting about Fuse is different than Compound is like Fuse is really a power tool. Mm -hmm. Like there's no risk to the Fuse protocol for for these shenanigans. Right. I'm stealing that word now. But like mm -hmm. uh, be, because it sort of isolates the risk to individual pools. So mm -hmm. any community can spin up their own pool with whatever risk parameters they want. And this community just created this extreme over leveraged, uh, terrible pool. Mm -hmm. And uh, th this is the outcome. And uh, it probably destroyed the project. I don't know. It's trading a little bit higher now, but um, this is definitely uh, definitely shaking the face. So, fuels fuse is a power tool. Mm -hmm. You know, like be very careful how you how you fingers. use it. Yeah, definitely. It's you just like you know shop class uh, yeah. again. Um, all right, let's get to inflation. That's mm -hmm. a big story this week. So we said eight point five percent inflation. This is the White House. This is a spokesperson for the White House calling extraordinary inflation extraordinarily elevated mm -hmm. extraordinarily elevated that was hitting headlines 
this week. Um, I guess a few stats for us. So inflation apparently was uh, a 40-year high. This is a 40-year high. So we haven't seen this since, I guess, 1981. This is after a decade of inflation, the 70s. It's kind of the high watermark. Uh, and the uh, really the energy and food costs are spiking up. They're hitting consumers the most. It's likely that the Fed is going to meet in three weeks' time. They're going to increase um, rates, interest rates, by probably about 50 basis points, so half a percent. Um I, it's absolutely crazy what's going on. Like th- these are some of the these are some of the inflation stats individually. Gasoline, gas is not not eat gas. Regular gas is up forty eight percent. Used cars up thirty five percent. Meat, fish, eggs up thirteen percent. Read read protein because that's like meat, fish, and eggs. That's protein. So energy, like, you know, good Human quality few food. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. Um, food at home is up ten percent. Like I, I don't know, man. Uh, went to uh, Costco this week and our grocery bill has never been higher. That is really? all-time highs. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. And it's I think everyone's feeling this. Like everyone is yeah. noticing. It's very mm-hmm. visible. I mean, you remember like 2 to 3% inflation per year, you don't barely notice, Invisible. right? Right. But 8.5%, then it's like on a monthly basis, you're just like, "Wow. Mm-hmm. Everything is spiking in price." Right. Who could have seen this coming? Gosh. I don't know. <sighs> I mean, they used to call it transitory inflation. That was last summer, and we were kind of making fun of that. But look, look at this. Look at this chart, David. This is um, this is kind of a data is beautiful sort of thing where mm-hmm, you can mm-hmm. kind of see rates from 1995 on. And we've right. just had decades, literally, of right. low inflation. You know, 1.4 is the lowest number that I see. The highest yeah. number that I see is four. Uh, Wow, in 2009, it was inverse. The dollar was deflationary. 2009, I see a negative 2.4% inflation rate. Wow. Yep, Yep. you're not seeing, like, I... 2008 was kind of a tricky year, of course. Well, that makes sense because that's right before the housing bubble. That was the peak of the housing bubble when there was so much capital flowing around. So that actually makes sense. And, and then, then we and then we retraced it, right? Like, oh, the how like five percent inflation rate happened too much, and then and then the housing bubble crashed, and we and we recorrected that. Healthy-ish, at least CPI. Right. No, asset right. price inflation, different story. Not healthy, but like healthy, healthy, healthy. Right. Now look at this, bam, right? Like six point two percent, bam, seven point five percent, seven point nine percent. April of twenty twenty one is when you really start to see it, and it starts to really change the parameters. Which is, makes sense because that is the first summer post-COVID when people decided that they were done and they were getting out and going to enjoy their lives again. And it was all, this is all COVID, man. Yeah, wow, totally, that 8.5 totally number is a dark square. <laughs> oh, man. So there's many, many more unfilled months for the remainder of 2022. And that's really <laughs> yes. going to be the story. It's like, how dark yeah. are those squares going to get? Or are they going to return to normalcy? Um, that is, the, I think, the, the big story of the remainder of 2022. How bad will inflation get? I think we're headed to double digits. Uh, you had a take here. What was your take on this? Yeah, I, uh, my take was inflation and dis- distrust in government are highly correlated. When they break mm. our money, they break our faith. Uh, and this is why in the crypto industry, we like to talk about the separation between government and money, the separation between money and state. Uh, because the government is responsible for the money and because money works because we all believe in it, when our faith in the money breaks, our faith in government also breaks. These are the same size of two different coins. No, yeah. the same two different sides of the same coin. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, I've, I've, absolutely. And I think that um, inflation is the thing that everyone notices. I, I would argue that... Um, 
markets have been broken for a while. Just the last like 15 years, asset price inflation has been absolutely insane. But now everyone's noticing it because everyone pays for things denominated in dollars. And now that's going off uh, the rails. And it's not clear that the Fed has a plan that's workable to, to correct this. Like it's kind of, you know, we use that term, uh, Powell is just, it's the Jesus take the wheel approach. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't think they know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, a year ago, less than a year ago, they were calling all of this transitory. Does this look very transitory to you? We have a, we have a, a clear escalation in inflation mm-hmm. rates. Mm-hmm. It's getting worse, not better. And how do you dial this down? They're barely taking action right now, and it's, it's unclear that they'll be able to get this genie back in the bottle. So TBD on that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard to what, see inflation getting worse than 8.5%, but also, what do I know? I was born in the 90s. I don't know anything. Well, yeah, it did get worse, and it can get worse. And what's what's different than the 1970s is that the Fed has far more, like the, the um, balance sheet has far more leverage. I mean, they weren't like mm-hmm. buying bonds uh, in, in the 1970s, and they have been. There's a massive amount of bonds on the balance sheet. So, um, and our you know, debt is higher than ever. Anyway. Again, Dan Moorhead episode if you want yeah. to hear more about this. Yeah, the reason why Ryan just skipped to the 70s was because that's what we talked about in, in Dan Moorhead. So let's contrast that, all right? Uh, we've called Ether, Ethereum, uh, Ether the asset, an internet bond before. Uh, and we think that this is especially true, of course, we're staking out, in a post-merge environment. You know, Bloomberg has been really increasing their coverage on Ether as an asset and, uh, you know, getting increasingly bullish on it. They have a few analysts over there that are, that are doing this. This is a Bloomberg estimate. Bloomberg is estimating post-merge a 9% ETH staking yield and a negative 2% issuance reduction annually. They're actually estimating Ether's yield as an internet bond and its supply. This is the type of stuff that we were hoping financial analysts would start to do on Wall Street that only like crypto people were doing, that only like mm-hmm. you know, guests on the Bankless Show and the Bankless Newsletter uh, were doing. And now we have Bloomberg doing it, not just Bankless. These estimates are pretty good. Right. I mean, it's based on some stuff. They've done, their, they've done their research. They've done their due diligence. I'm not sure if it's going to be like 9%, I actually would err on, on something yeah, higher than 9%. Percent, maybe. Yeah, and it's probably like with MEV and such, you're probably like maybe 12 to 15% is what I would say. This 2% issuance reduction sounds about right, but it's just so cool to see Bloomberg covering this and also contrast that with what's going on in the yield markets. It's where so you are, you are making like, if you buy a, a treasury, a government bond right now, in real terms, how much are you losing per year? Like 2%, 3% losing per year. What a contrast. Mm-hmm. Buying Ether as in like an internet bond versus the sovereign bonds that you can get in, in fiat economies. That's, dude, that's, I mean, think of what it, like how magical this must look like. And honestly, why people probably look at this with skepticism. How can there be a net issuance reduction of 2%, negative 2% deflation in the monetary supply rather than inflation of the monetary supply? and investors be getting yield. That has to just boggle people's brains until they understand the relationship between block-based sales, EIP-1559, all that stuff. Okay, so on one hand, you have a currency that is inflating in supply, so your real terms are, are going down, and the yield that you get on the on, in the bond market is because of treasuries and, and issuance from the United States government is less than the actual real terms of value. So you have 
uh, inf inflating supply of the currency base and the yield for your bonds is less than the actual inflation. On the other side of things, you have a deflating currency base, but the yield that you're getting on that deflating currency is higher than the yield that you would get in the bonds. I know, man. It's insane. <laughs> it's also, look, the narrative is too good here too, right? It's just forget digital gold. Mm -hmm. Like we're going after the bond market, right. the sovereign bond market, right? Not mm -hmm. $8 trillion in market cap. It's like 50 to $70 trillion in market cap. Uh, Peter Thiel, when he was talking at uh, the, the Bitcoin conference, he, he made the comparison between Bitcoin and Ethereum, and he compared Ethereum to Visa. And he was like, all right, well, here's Visa's market cap as a payments it's network. But then Bitcoin is going after the much larger market cap of gold. And like gold has got a $7 trillion market cap, and Visa is only like, I don't know, half of, half of I don't know, whatever Visa is. And I'm just watching Peter Thiel talk about how com comparing so Ethereum to Visa. I'm like, yeah. bro, we aren't... We, you guys are taking the smaller market cap and going after gold. We're going after the bond market, bro. <laughs> I don't even understand. Like, I don't even understand. Like, uh, Ether is just as much a non-sovereign store of value as Bitcoin is at this point. And, mm -hmm. and to, to compare it in that way just feels like you're living back in 2017. Right. Whatever. Look at this chart, man. Uh, fiat issuance, 12%. Right. Mm -hmm. And then we have uh, Ethereum over here post merged at a negative 2%, negative 2.2%. So it's it's almost like Apple stock buybacks, right? Right. Whereas mm -hmm. like Apple stock, you get a negative 3 to 4% uh, issuance rate in, in kind of buybacks. That's essentially what you're getting with, uh, with Ethereum. Anyway, I don't think the, the, the bond market's going to know what hits it <laughs> once this narrative comes out. Okay. It's just like, realize it's just come from kind of the Ethereum community. Bankless is very like, um, bottom layer of the tier here right so like we basically uh we we learn from researchers and we try to D understand the, the protocol as best we can we get it direct from the source and then we bring it a level higher to we help more people understand it but like mainstream does not tune into bankless in the way mm -hmm. they tune it but but bloomberg tunes into bankless mm -hmm. so then bloomberg gets a hold of it and then Pretty soon, other analysts take a look at this thing. They're like, "What is this? What is concentric happening here?" Concentric models, concentric exactly. models of, of information. This mm -hmm. is this is what's happening. If you're listening to Bankless, the good news is you're still early. Like, yeah. no one knows about this, David. No mm -hmm. one knows about this. Right. Even half of the crypto, more than half of the crypto industry, is not appreciating this. I know. I'm sure that the Bitcoiners, at the the, the anti-Ethereum skeptics, would love to say like, "But you guys, the merge just got delayed." Okay, fine. Like, more time to more time to stack ETH. That's great. Yeah, we'll, let's talk about that. We'll talk about that coming up. But guys, we want to get to a few more things, some releases first. Before we do all of that, we want to thank the sponsors that made this episode possible. All right, guys, the releases of the week. Robinhood, you know them, big fintech platform, a lot of the meme stocks trading there. They just enabled crypto wallet transfers. So on Robinhood, you, you, for a long time, you've had the ability to buy like crypto assets, right? Mm -hmm. But Robinhood was always custodying them. And this annoyed us to no end because that is the antithesis of of the bankless vision which is you should have the option to take sovereignty of your keys if, if you want to Robinhood would never previously had not enabled withdrawals to private keys well now they are so they are enabling the withdrawal from the Robinhood platform to uh, crypto wallets which is fantastic well done Robinhood I think they are also adding some other crypto features. This is sort of what we've been told that are even more kind of, you know, self-sovereign and, and bankless in the future too. So I think this is a sign of Robinhood getting on board. What's your take here? 
Yeah, they, they say from the article, the rollout began in September to a select group of users, as reported at the time. And in December, the company inked a deal with blockchain analytics firm Chainalysis to prepare for the offering's wider rollout. So they probably didn't want to, uh, if I'm reading reading the writing on the wall, they probably didn't want to allow users to have complete self-sovereignty over their uh, being able to take custody of their own funds because like securities regulations is different than crypto asset regulations. And so like giving them the ability to freely exit uh, is like concerning for them. Uh, but that is the way the industry is moving. They, we have the power to take over our money, so we will. Um, but they've onboarded Chainalysis, like the eye of Sauron of the government, the the, the tech extension of the government to uh, surveil the incomings and outcomings of going out of out of Robinhood to help protect them. Um, and so, do be aware if you are using uh, using Robinhood, the Chainalysis, which has way better data about blockchain analytics than you do, uh, is watching you. They're probably watching you anyways, so there's that. Um, but like th this is Robinhood trying to keep up with the rest of the industry and, and allowing us to do all the things that crypto allows us to do. So thank you, Robinhood, for, for getting to this point. And I'm looking forward to the further in increased innovations that are coming out of you guys. I think Layer 2 is next. Look, they're adding the Bitcoin right. Lightning Network, apparently. Mm -hmm. uh, and I expect other Ethereum Layer 2s will, will come after that. So very good. Also, uh, Polygon, this is maybe uh, they're doing some more liquidity mining yeah. just to incent use of their protocol. What's going on here? Yeah, this isn't just like another liquidity mining program. They're actually, I think, really pioneering, innovating, trying to make liquidity mining get the KPIs that they're really looking for. Uh, they actually are literally calling it KPI liquidity mining, first ever KPI liquidity mining 2.0. So rather than just like yeeting out, spraying out uh, Matic tokens to incentivize the adoption of protocols, they're doing things that are more surgical, more targeted to make sure that those issuance rewards are actually producing the outcomes that they're are looking for rather than just being like liquidity mined to death rather than just being farmed and dumped um, so there's two parameters that they're really looking for in this 2.0 version of liquidity mining total value locked and weekly average users total wow. uh, total value locks really benefits the whales which is good because you need liquidity uh, but weekly average users also uh, benefits the small guy like the little fry uh, the individuals. Um, and so I, I, I like this model. If they can get this right, I think this is a, a great just like experiment for the industry to understand. Uh, even Anon teams can apply for the, the campaign. Every single month, distribution is manually evaluated, which I think is actually a great just tool, just manual evaluation. It's a little bit harder, but you get a lot more bang for your buck. Uh, and applications that have worked harder to uh, get the KPIs out the door get more and more allocation for the next month, so long as they proved it. Uh, projects get to choose, the individual projects get to choose where they send the funds, of course. Uh, and then there's this graph that Ryan's got on screen which is showing all the eligible applications on Matic, on Polygon, that are receiving distributions, things like Ave Gachi, uh, StakeDAO, uh, and then a bunch of other things that I'm actually not familiar with. Yeah, this is really cool. So less gameable, and the bottom line is more tokens if you more are tokens, using yeah. these Layer 2 protocols. Uh, and so be, be aware of that and get involved. We encourage you to just like use all of these protocols, guys. You got to get there. Um, what is this? This is uh, Umbra. Oh, yeah. Is Umbra. A, this is a privacy payments mm -hmm. type of protocol. What's going on? Yeah, privacy payments on both Optimism and Arbitrum. They call them stealth payments. I don't know if that's a technical difference from like privacy payments like Aztec or, or what stealth payments are, but uh, I would imagine it's net, net the same. Um, so yeah, uh, privacy payments on Layer 2 coming with Umbra. That's really cool. Uh, good to see that. Uh, privacy also, is also expensive because it's computationally expensive, but when you put it on a layer two, it becomes a lot more viable. Right. 
which we need, man. So the Eye of Sauron can't uh, invade everywhere. We still right. are able to preserve our privacy as we are in the physical world. Um, mm-hmm. Uniswap Labs, they just announced and they just launched, excuse me, a swap widget. Mm-hmm. This looks really cool. What is this? Yeah, so uh, as we know, the front ends for, for applications are centralized, especially like app.uniswap.finance or whatever whatever it is. I don't know, it auto-loads into my browser. Uh, that's the Uniswap Labs operated front end. Uh, that's the thing that like, you know, restricts based off certain geolocations. Uh, they're building a widget to put different Uniswap Labs front ends wherever they, there needs to be exchanges. Uh, so maybe it's like an iframe, if I'm remembering my web dev history correctly. Um, but like you can basically inject a Uniswap Add it to your website. Widget, add it to your website. Like, yeah. Like it just click, click button, deploy, allow for your tokens, right? So I don't know, maybe you have like a token gated website and somebody comes to your website and wants to access your whatever's behind your token gate, but they don't have your token. You could just put your Uniswap widget on your website so that people can get your token. It's um, basically like you, you have to have 10 tokens to become a me- member. You know, you embed mm-hmm. the Uniswap widget, click here, bam, you're a, you're a member, right? Because you're just buying a Uniswap. Or any use case or any that needs a swap, right? Like, so yeah. like, oh, I got to go NFTs do too. buy the token to do the things. Well, right. I got to go load up Uniswap. Well, if you just put the widget into the website, it's easier. Yeah, it's super cool. It's going to become uh, pretty pervasive, per, uh, pervasive in all of that liquidity, of course, that Uniswap has mm-hmm. bring, you know, bring to bear, decreases the price on that stuff. So it's cool. Um, Avalanche Mempool, what do you want to tell us about this? Are they opening up? What's What's happening? Yeah, so this was something I was actually talking with David Mihal, who runs the crypto, like crypto fees, moneyprinter.info. We use his websites a bunch to display metrics. Uh, and I was talking to him about um, how the Avalanche mempool is actually not available for public view. Uh, this is something that they have closed and only available to people who stake AVAX tokens, um, which I, I have concerns with because uh, MEV is something that makes the DeFi ecosystem for your chain extremely efficient and extremely solid, right? Very rapid liquidations. It prevents cascading liquidations when there shouldn't have to be. Having a very... David- Mm-hmm. There might be some people who don't even know what that mempool is, though, right? Oh, so, yeah. Wow, you're right. Yeah, what is that? That's okay. like a holding tank area, right? Right. Where transactions yeah. are queued. Mm-hmm. So yeah, if you're on Ethereum, the way that I'm familiar with the mempool is like you go submit your transactions, and then you go click the link to EtherScan, and it shows like, oh, your transaction is pending, and you just got the you cut the loading screen, and then boom, it's confirmed. Before it's confirmed, it's in the mempool. So the mempool stands for memory pool. It's like a memory bank of transactions, uh, and so like. Uh, while your transaction is pending and not yet in the blockchain, it's in the mempool. Uh, and the mempool is where MEV arbitragers, people that are reordering transactions to benefit themselves, are taking all these transactions and ordering them so they can extract some sort of value, like some arbitrage on Uniswap or, or they can get first to liquidations. Avalanche does not give that mempool out to the public. It keeps it contained for the Avalanche stakers because that makes the AVAX token, uh, if you want to access the rewards of MEV, you have to own AVAX, right? It's a little bit reminiscent of order deal flow from Robinhood to Citadel, which got people very, very upset earlier in the days. And it's always been a very big concern of mine that they don't open up the mempool to the public. The mempool is a public good, it's a public resource, and having a publicly available mempool just makes the whole system very, very strong and anti-fragile. Because Uh, as we saw in the Robinhood case, uh, the ability to order transactions mm-hmm. or pr- you process them you know uh in whatever order you wish is a very powerful feature especially mm-hmm. when you're dealing with large amounts you know anything financial it's a very powerful mm-hmm. superpower 
Oh, it's arguably the biggest power in DeFi. If you have God mode basically over that one block because you're the validator, you, ha you have momentary guard God mode for that one block. So you can order the transactions as you see fit to best benefit yourselves. Okay, so it's previously, and actually still, the Avalanche mempool is not available to the public. But this Chainsight, Chainsight Labs organization ha, has, uh, they put out a tweet announcing that they are opening up the Avalanche mempool because they are an Avalanche staker. And so on Avalanche's behalf, they are broadcasting the mempool because they have access to that data. So they tweet out, for too long, MEV on Avalanche has been gatekept and siloed from the masses due to AVAX not gossiping the mempool. But no longer. Today, we release the web app to Snowsight, an AVAX mempool service. So you can access, finally, the Avalanche mempool at avax.chainsite.dev, uh, and that you, can, you can now tap into the mempool. And so what should be a public good has actually now been captured by Chainsite because Avalanche hasn't released it. And so now Chainsite is like the broadcaster of the, uh, of the mempool. I mean, in my mind, Avalanche should just open it up anyways. This is, going to, this is the logical conclusion for the Avalanche mempool. But... Between now and then, Chainsight has complete monopoly over the broadcasting of the Avalanche mempool. Um, but also thank you to Chainsight for opening that thing up. Again, the mempool is a public good. It should not be privatized. Absolutely. Uh, let's let's switch to Razus. Epic Games, they just got $2 billion to do what? To build an avatar-filled metaverse. All right, oh so the makers of Fortnite now get $2 billion to go create a whole bunch of avatars in whatever the metaverse means to epic games which you know is going to involve nfts of some form of, or fashion uh that's that's pretty big news man this mm -hmm. is like a major gaming studio entering in a big way what are your thoughts yeah there's also lego is involved yeah lego i i guess lego has kind of always been like a metaverse-esque type of type of organ um uh type of like brand um two billion in raw funding uh that's pretty insane. Uh, this kind of is, feels very similar to uh, the Microsoft acquisition of Activision Blizzard. Um, you know, game game companies being acquired by uh, or just funding and other things of this nature. So like, you know, trad by web to trad organizations coming into the metaverse in their own particular way. Okay. All right. Uh, let's talk about Uniswap Labs Ventures. We're just talking about Uniswap in general, but it looks like they've spun out a VC firm uh, or a VC uh, agency, I guess, and they are going to invest in uh, Web3 organizations, I imagine, Web3 projects. Here's a list of the, the projects they started with. Uh, Tenderly, Layer Zero, Bridge Protocol, MakerDAO, apparently, mm -hmm. Aave, uh, Compound Protocol, a whole bunch of others. What do you make of this sort of... DeFi projects, DeFi protocols now launching their own capital pools as mm -hmm. becoming venture capitalists. I, I think it, it's a logical conclusion. It's not like they are making a particular strategy or they are doing anything unique. When they they just need they have capital and you if you are a somebody who owns capital you need to put your capital to work for you, uh, and so this is the logical conclusion. This is the theme of the space. Is like all DAOs have turned into VCs, all DeFi projects have turned into VCs. Like Coinbase Ventures started up forever ago. Coinbase is an exchange, but you know the the industry is so ripe and young and fertile that they should take some of their capital because it is, and because it's logical to and invest it in things. So any DeFi app with a token that has a significant treasury, you're going to see them turn into VCs. They're also investing in things that kind of benefit the Uniswap protocol. I would imagine Certainly. the same way that uh, you know FTX and uh, SBF is investing in things that that benefit FTX. 
So I imagine we see more of that. Um, it's interesting. Yeah, I don't know quite how I feel about it, but uh, Spencer Dune has an interesting take about VCs in general and the entire model. Mm-hmm. He says this, protocols are launching funds, anons are angel investing, DAOs are raising millions in, uh, per day. Some projects don't even raise private dollars anymore. <laughs> BC, as we know it, is probably dead by 2030. It's so funny because do you remember when ICOs uh, were going crazy in 2017, that's what people were saying. It's like, oh, the VC model is dead. It's dead. And the VCs would fight back and be like, what are you talking about? These these ICO tokens are nothing. They're futility tokens. This isn't real. And they proved to be right. But I bet they are not going to be right over the longer time horizon. I think we have a massive disruption force in the typical VC model. We're never going back to like the 1990s and the 2000 era. Of, uh, of VCs. I think this crypto is going to completely disrupt um, what's happening. What are your thoughts? Yeah, just one nuance. And I think Spencer got it right. Like VCs, and you said it too, VCs as we know it. And so you you, you talked about how the the VCs of the 90s and 20s are dead. And we, the, I think the crypto industry has already shifted the Overton window of what a VC means. Totally. A VC, what VC is, is changing. But right. I do think there the the one thing that will never ever go away from whatever you call a VC uh, is always legitimacy and brand and trust, right? Like yeah. that is what a VC is. Uh, we when I did my episode with uh, Hasib Qureshi from Dragonfly, we dove into these subjects, um, and he made a very strong case as to why VCs will never go away, because like you know the opposite of VT- VCs is retail, right? And so when you say retail, what you're really talk, talking about, what you want to be tar- talking about is just like the average hobbyists, uh, yeah. ho- hobbyists who care and have hard the times. shared values and, and, and legitimacy, but it's hard to target those people. So what VCs do is they like, co- like centralize and collapse all the legitimacy into one organization and, that, and they have their network, right? Well, you're never going to get away from that. No, there is a need for the function that, that VCs provide. It's sort of like uh, we're not trying to get rid of banking there's a need for banking but we're trying to get rid of banks like that's that's what's happening so you still need to lend borrow and you know pay for things you just Mm -hmm. don't need the you know 150,000 wells fargo employees to go help you do those things in the bank branches and physical locations so yeah i think that's what's happening here for sure plus Um, there's plenty of toxic individuals out there and those toxic individuals definitely don't become part of vc firms right uh, Circle just announced $400 million funding round, so they're getting funding. I think the big news is it's BlackRock, Fidelity, like some really big institutional finance names now coming into Circle. Circle, of course, creators of uh, USDC, the biggest, the, not the biggest, but the biggest, I guess, most legitimate stablecoin mm-hmm. in the US. Mm-hmm. Also, Avalanche uh, developer just raised $350 million. So Avalanche developer, does this just mean Avalanche, the ecosystem is raising $350 million? What is this, David? Yeah, that title is, is certainly odd. This is definitely the Avalanche ecosystem. Now, Ava Labs, the main, ah, okay. De- uh, okay, here's what they mean. The developer of Avalanche, Ava Labs, they can basically ah, just, I say, see. just say Avalanche. It's not an individual developer. It's, it's no, the studio be behind it. Yeah, okay. so report raised $350 million in a new funding round valued at $5.25 billion in valuation. The way that that works, because the Avalanche token is actually liquid, right? So what, what they did is uh, they probably just like discounted it. So the, wow, the actual, the market cap of, of Avalanche is $20 billion. Does that mean that they got a, a, 20, a 75% discount on the token? No, that no, can't no. Mean that. no, no, no. I mean, there, there's, so there's the... There's the market cap of the token, right? And then there's Ava Labs, the entity that 
likely owns a whole bunch of the token on their balance sheet, ah, okay. but it's the develop. This is like a, this would be akin to like the Ethereum Foundation right. getting funded, for example, because they have a balance sheet of Ether on the table. Yeah, and because okay. they're producing Ethereum type stuff, it's really interesting. I don't know the structure of Ava Labs, but I imagine it's you know it's got to be a commercial entity, right? Mm-hmm. It's got to be a, like a private right. entity, which is very different than the EF, which right. has always been nonprofit. nonprofit. Right. Doesn't can't get funding like that. And right. uh, plans to dissolve over time. Right. This is much more, uh, much more commercial. Mm-hmm. Uh, definitely different than the the vision that uh, Vitalik yes. had when he <laughs> had this fork in the road of mm-hmm. do we go nonprofit and become sort of a public good, or do we go like raise money from VCs and go the Charles Hoskinson route uh, that he was advising, and uh, he mm-hmm. decided to stick with the nonprofit foundation, which is the EF. But many other layer ones are going in the complete opposite direction. Yeah, the cultural difference I think uh, couldn't be couldn't be more clear here. The the idea of dissolving the the thing that helped birth Ethereum rather than making that entity larger over time uh, has significant impacts to the ecosystem as a whole. Um, and the uh, money that came from this was uh, from Three Arrows Capital and Polychain. Interesting. Some people see this as a strength; others see it as a weakness. It mm-hmm. uh, depends what side of the spectrum you're on. I uh, I have my own takes, David. I, <laughs> I know you do as well. I don't think the listeners need to guess. <laughs> uh, Ignite, formerly Tendermint, they just la- uh, launched a 150 million dollar accelerator for Web3 projects. So this is from the the Cosmos ecosystem, really. And Tendermint is being used everywhere. That's the consensus. Um, uh, the the consensus, you know, mm-hmm. platform structure behind uh, Luna. Uh, also behind Matic, like Tendermint is huh. is being used in so many different places. So they're I've just heard getting funded. so much praise for the actual technology of Tendermint. Yeah, it's like really people cool. people have said that it's been rock solid job. for years. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's it's open source, and you can mm-hmm. take it, use it in their project. For it's definitely a net uh, net accretion to the industry. Actually, we're getting Ethan, uh, who's one of the original creators of mm-hmm. Tendermint, on Bankless to come on tell us a few mm-hmm. things about it and, and the Cosmos ecosystem. Might be sort of a back and forth. Um, debate structure. We'll have to see. Uh, Goldman Sachs, they are investing in blockchain security firm uh, Certic, an $88 million funding round. Certic, are they like um, auditing, smart contract auditing type stuff? Uh, yes. Yeah. So they, they Certic uses, uh, from what they claim, AI technology to monitor blockchain protocols and provide security audits for smart contracts. So like I think one part chain analysis, but then also um, a little bit of just like automated auditing. Um, uh, they also have launched uh, KYC in front of investigation services. So a combo of smart contract auditing, but also chain analysis type stuff as well. Yeah. Nice. Uh, Nomad as well, $22 million, a seed round for security first interoperability. So another bridge type interoperability play. Really cool. All that money going into the space. Or speaking of all that money that's pouring into crypto, a lot of job opportunities pouring into crypto as well. We've got a ton of them listed on the Bankless Jobs Board. This is our time of the week to remind you to get a job in crypto if you already haven't. It's the best place to work. It's fantastic. Uh, let me read out some jobs. I don't know what David's doing. He's leaving his house. I think he's afraid to dance. No, he's doing the background dance. There we go. Jobs, bankless newsletter, editor, number one, content manager at Tally, a director of developer relations at Valis, a Solidity architect at Lou, a marketing manager at Misha, a UX designer at Prometheus Research Labs, a community manager of DGen Dogs Club. God, that sounds cool. Co-founder for an innovative omni-chain DeFi protocol, TBD, mystery project, blockchain engineer, Masari, software engineer, Masari, operations manager, Syndica, Senior product designer, smart DeFi, senior Go Rust engineer, Syndica, senior full stack engineer, Syndica, senior software uh, engineer, Eric. 
Airdrop Labs. Oh my God, there's so many. Product Manager, Crypto, Nori, a bankless web developer at Bankless. Go check him out. Man, that was a lot. David, you can come back now. We got through all the jobs. We can move on now. <laughs> People getting hired in crypto. It's a beautiful thing. All right. Do you want to get to the news? Here's the, here's the sad face news. Uh, should have uh, been expecting it. I get optimistic every single time. Uh, but the merge, according to Tim Bako, won't be in June, but will likely be a few months after. Of course, no firm date yet. There never was. Uh, you can't call it a delay because there was never a date uh, in the first place. People will call it a delay, though, just because there are expectations. People are like, ooh, June, June, June. Uh, and then Tim's like, nope, still not June. And then gets kicked out a couple more months. Uh, and so August? <laughs> August? <laughs> I'll do it again. <laughs> you saying dates because you have to? I mean, there is no date, right? It's going to happen this year, though, isn't it? 2022? <laughs> 2022? It's going to happen this year. <laughs> right, Tim? <laughs> I got the, the Gandalf meme here. Ethereum devs right now with Gandalf face. The merge is never late. It arrives precisely when it means to. Mm-hmm. I think that's what Always the devs has are. Been. Like, that's what the devs are communicating. It's like, hey, guys, don't ever say a date again. Okay? Don't. And I, I feel like um, dates work through social consensus as well. Is somebody says, oh, these things lead me to believe the date is X. It never, mm-hmm. it never comes from developers who are saying these dates unless, unless it's like imminent. And then the community rallies around that date and is like, yeah, it must be date X. And then mm-hmm. someone gets a hold of it and it gets projected out further and further. Like, and then everyone's saying June before long. But to be fair, developers never said June in the first place. It's only they the do not, They do not uh, give dates. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, we always like to ask. And uh, I don't know. It feels like, what did Tim say? What are the exact words? Let's parse a few, through this. A few like months a after. Jerome Powell thing. No firm date yet, but we're definitely in the final chapter. It won't be June, but likely in the few months after. Few months. What's few to you? Is that three? three yeah, three at best. You probably got to lean. You got to. You got to add. So it's not two. It's got to be at least three. Four. Yeah, October. <laughs> October. October. <laughs> so much time to stack Halloween. more ETH. <laughs> Gonna launch on Halloween, guys. Uh-huh. Anyway, is what it is. Keep moving forward. More time to stack ETH. Uh, all right, Maker and Maple, a partnership to scale the digital economy. What is this partnership, David? Two DeFi yeah. protocols teaming up. Yeah, this is super simple. The MakerDAO's D3M, the DAI Direct Module, allows a Maker to mint DAI in specific liquidity pools. Uh, they have this with Aave, so Aave has the power to mint DAI directly as needed. Uh, that is, this ability is now being extended to Maple Finance. Maple Finance is a under collateralized institution. Uh, lending uh, DeFi app. So uh, money, like uh, liquidity for institutions, trusted institutions who use their reputation as collateral, uh, and now is being hooked into Maker so they can go and straight and mint die straight from the Maker protocol. Nice. Good yep. protocol mashup, good team up. Uh, NFT news. I'm going to start here. Do you know Mark Zuckerberg? He's creating this metaverse thing. He wants to charge people 50% commission on NFTs sold in the metaverse. It's actually like 47 point something percent. And this is basically the uh, kind of the App Store model. You know how Apple mm-hmm. charges 30% and everything? I It seems like Meta and Mark and the team over there think they can just port this model over to the metaverse and over to NFTs. And I don't know how he can think that. We definitely do not pay 50% mm-hmm. commission to an intermediary 
on the things we use in crypto and NFTs. I mean, granted, we do pay two percent to OpenSea, two point five percent. Right. So that's that's something on purchases, and that's probably worth it. But can you command a fifty percent margin? And even OpenSea, you got to anticipate as competition enters, its prices will erode because OpenSea doesn't actually own the NFTs, right? It's all like registered on chain. So it's going to erode over time as well. What do you think of this? Do they just not understand the business model of this Web3 thing? Maybe there's part of the story that like we're not familiar with, but also like maybe just people are like, oh yeah, like I'll pay 50% to not get scammed by Web3. Uh, maybe that's the take here. But like at the same time, like all this whole like Web2 Web doing Web3 things is going to, as people get more and more comfortable with it, they're going to realize like, why am I paying Mark Zuckerberg such high rent? I'm going to go do it for free in Web3. And maybe this is going to be a positive PR move for Web3 over time, maybe. Yeah, we'll we'll have to see how that plays out. It just feels like uh, that is so incongruous to yeah, yeah, egregious. It just doesn't it doesn't match. It's a mismatch. Fifty percent rent fee on anything is egregious. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I can't believe we still pay thirty percent in the App Store. Um, this is cool. A bored ape yacht club restaurant is was that just cool? launched. <laughs> you know what's cool about this? So th- this is the this is the restaurant itself. You know what's cool about this is this guy, I presume, owns the board ape himself, right? Sure. And what I was thinking about is the license uh, guarantees to the to the board ape owners. It's basically, they get to profit on use of their ape in whatever they choose. You could put it on a T-shirt and profit that way. You could open up a restaurant and profit that way. You could sell like sell license to it in a movie. So what's cool about this is. Um, it kind of an entrepreneur gets use of the NFT that he purchased for some sort of commercial gain. And this is different than the Creative Commons license, right? Because if you have Creative Commons, anyone can do this. Like your MFers, my MFers, anyone can launch uh, a store, put your MFer in a movie without asking your permission. That's Creative Commons. Please do. But board, but board apes are more restrictive. And they they provide like the owner of the NFT themselves with the actual license ability and, and rights. Uh, so it's different. It's just like I like how these two experiments are playing out. Like I have probably preferences, and I think some models will be more successful than others. But you got to admit that this is kind of a cool use of an NFT. Uh, yes, I guess. But also at the same time, uh, what does the ape have anything to do with a restaurant, right? Oh, like, I don't, I have no idea as, if the restaurant will be successful. As a customer, like, if you're, if you're looking at like, all right, where do I want to get lunch? I'm hungry for cheeseburgers. Does going the, to the ape, ape aspect thing have anything to do with your decision making? Like uh, it doesn't, I'm cringe, not sure actually. boost the value of the restaurant though. Yeah, it's probably, this is like the, the restaurant itself is maybe a sort of a strange pick for this, but like, right. I don't know plush toys. I don't know. Something could hit. I don't know. I guess so. Um, let's talk about this. The, the story this does is not a end movie. here. Yeah. So what's happening? Yeah. Coinbase uh, is creating an interactive three-part film featuring the Bored Ape Yacht Club and ApeCoin communities. Uh, so a film about apes and what's the ape universe with Coinbase called the D-Gen Trilogy. Uh, Interactive film, maybe that's like the whole choose-your-own-adventure type film that um, Netflix did not too long ago, uh, and also Shimbuya from People Pleasers building. You know, maybe, maybe that's what's going on here. Um, but yeah, again, the ape brand, uh, like that's what people should, I, th- I really think, should take away is that, you know, basically NFTs are just brands. 
That's what they are. The ape brand is yep. really, really strong. So now there's a restaurant ape brand, and now there is a movie ape brand. Hmm. It's basically a brand, brand manager, a community, and some capital. That's yeah. to me what an NFT is, like right. an NFT community is. But also, like the, my my bear case for that is just like for anyone that doesn't own an ape NFT, they're not incentivized to go watch the movie. They're actually kind of disincentivized a little bit because they're you kind the of cringed group. out by it a little bit. A, a little like, bit cringed I don't out, care. but like, I don't have an ape. Yeah, right. Like I don't care about your community. Like I'm not going to go watch your stupid movie. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I, I I do think that uh, some of these things could actually flop in right. weird ways like i don't know it all depends on the brand management of it there's a lot of dependencies here i mm-hmm. it's going to be really interesting to see these things play out here's here's an experiment that didn't play out so well <laughs> oh god so this guy a uh, crypto entrepreneur uh purchased jack dorsey's first ever tweet mm-hmm. so the first time jack dorsey logged on to twitter in 2006 he tweeted something he purchased it as an nft for 2.9 million dollars a jpeg of the tweet wonder if you could see what it looks like uh actually let me pull it up the, in the, tweet, the tweet was from sent and the tweet was something along the lines of uh, just trying out my twitter account tweeted from jack it was the first tweet ever just um, trying out my twitter account anyway he paid 2.9 million dollars for it and then david he went to go sell it so he's like ah oh, i, I kind of want to sell it i'm going to auction it out i'm going to give some proceeds to uh charity he thought he'd be able to sell maybe $25 million NFT space. I bought it for 2.9. It's got to appreciate in value. I guess the closing bid, the last bid he got, $280. Oof. For an NFT he paid $2.9 million. $2. million for. What's the what's the multiplier or the the oh god that's like down point nine nine point nine nine percent that is some that's tax a, loss harvesting my friend that's a that's a down bad right there <laughs> that's real down bad now he's probably not going to sell it for that but it just no goes way. to show you like um man you can really get wrecked by NFTs and I think a lot of the the success that we read about NFTs for every success you see of somebody making millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. It has to be like 99, at least right. failures, probably 999. It's just mm-hmm. the survival bias where we always hear about the guy who just made, you know, $5 million on an NFT mm-hmm. flip. Right. Uh, yeah, well, I had to take about this. Uh, remember when somebody bought the Beeple NFT for $69 million? Yes. Like, how do you how do you think that's what do you think that's doing on the secondary market? Oh, right now? Yeah, I have no idea. I have no over idea. Or under, over or under $1 million? I'm going to say I would not have departed with my ETH for that purchase, okay? I would just <laughs> kept my ETH for that purchase because I think it's it's an asset that's going to appreciate more than the the Beeple, but, you know, who that's knows? That's right. That's right. Okay. Beeple sold his ETH from that, too. A whole yeah. big chunk of it. Yeah. At what price? Like 3000 It was I like 3000 I think. Yeah, I guess like he, maybe he's up. Maybe he's, maybe he's okay. I don't know. Yeah. I'm sure people's going to be fine. I think people's doing just fine. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure he's going to be okay. <laughs> What's this? Uh, there is people mm-hmm. taking loans on their NFTs now. We've talked about that for a while. It looks like it's mm-hmm. happening. This is the biggest one I've seen. Somebody borrowed $8.3 million on their CryptoPunk, the value of their CryptoPunk. Yeah, remember that story of the CryptoPunk lot that was going to Sotheby's, 104 yeah. of them, and the guy, uh, like the like hours before the lot, because the CryptoPunk floor was like plummeting at that time, and they, he was going to sell 104 CryptoPunks, and then he just uh. changed, he changed his mind last minute. Well, he got liquidity in a different way by borrowing $8.3 <laughs> million on his, against his 104 CryptoPunk, uh, uh, CryptoPunk loan, collateral. You so, know what? Cool. That, that is tax-free liquidity, my friend. Another mm-hmm. pro tip for you. This yeah, is the tax edition of Bankless. Don't get liquidated. 
Yeah, just don't get liquidated. I'm sure he's fine. So that that was a batch of 104 CryptoPunks, uh, yeah. not not just one, obviously, which is why he's getting so much. And a die denominated, which is kind of cool. Mm-hmm. All right, let's get to uh, the Musk watch. Oh boy. Elon Musk, he was going to join the board of Twitter last week. Now this week, he's quitting that. He's not joining the board any longer. Something happened. Do you know what happened? Uh, yeah. Uh, Elon, t- this morning, I believe, may- yeah, this morning, Thursday morning, uh, tweets out, I made an offer and then links to an SEC filed document, which is an offer to buy Twitter, not, not buy shares of Twitter, buy Twitter, the whole the thing, whole, the whole thing for a, an average for a share price of $54 and 20 cents, um, uh, which is a 54% pre- premium over the January 28th closing price. I don't, I'm not sure why the 20, January 20th closing price matters, but, um, yeah, valuation of $43 billion. Wow. Elon Musk made an offer to buy Twitter. Wow. How crazy would that be if that happened? So how, how much is this total? Uh, I Do don't we know, know how much this is? I don't know. I don't know. Oh, $43 billion, David. It's $43 billion. Oh my God. Oh so that's only God. like an eighth of a Musk. That's not very much. Uh, Can't he like, I, I'd really like him to stick to the whole rockets and electric cars thing. <laughs> I, don't, I don't. Well, think some people Twitter's think he's going to be really good for. Some people think he's going to be really good for Twitter, David. Like you know, per- permitting. Free I think speech. Elon Musk he, has the potential to be really good for planet Earth, and Twitter doesn't really have that same potential. Interesting. As a Twitter power user yourself, are you like not not bullish on uh, on Twitter? I, I would like the planet to not die of climate change, and also for the humans to become an interstellar species. And Twitter's not doing anything in those regards. <laughs> Stay, stick to what you know, Elon. That's what David's saying. Yeah. Like, you're really good I mean, at some he, things. Go, go focus on that. He does tweet a lot. Yeah. Uh, but he'd have to outbid Justin Sun. Though apparently, Justin Sun is offering $60 per share. Mm-hmm. Is this real? Is this a real <sighs> tweet? Yeah, this is a real tweet. For Justin Sun is a one upping Elon Musk. Uh, I tweeted out Justin Sun, the Me Too founder of the world, just like, oh, notice me offering $60 a share. I don't know if Justin Sun has that much money. Pretty sure he doesn't. Um, if he does, it makes me very sad <laughs> because very, I know. Sad. Um, yeah, but that that's a, a please notice me type take. Um, mm-hmm. Anyway, we'll see. We'll see if that happens next week. It could totally change. You know, next week, maybe Elon's buying Facebook or something. We'll have to see. All right, switching gears for a minute. We got to update you guys on the Axie Infinity hacker. Remember the hacker that stole hundreds of millions of dollars worth of ETH from the Axie Infinity bridge to the Ronin sidechain? Well... We're curious what he's doing with all of that money, uh, how this hacker, he, she, they are exiting the system. Uh, this is a tweet from watcher.guru, somebody watching all of these accounts. Axie Infinity hacker has so far laundered 7.5% of the stolen Ethereum using Tornado Cash, mm-hmm. Tornado Cash to launder it, which is, of course, a sort of a privacy a coin mixer, I might yeah. say, Tumblr on Ethereum. So what does this mean, David? Yeah, so uh, when you put your Ether into Tornado Cash, you can do it, I think, in like I think in lots of 1, 10, and 100 Ether. Uh, and then all of those get bundled up together. And then you sit and just like let it steep and stew because people are putting in Ether, people are pulling out Ether. So like you wait some period of time and then you pull it out the other side and no one really knows who You get lost what. in the crowd, basically. You get, you get exactly, lost in the crowd, right? Uh, 7.5% of that, the one of the largest hacks in DeFi ever is a significant amount of Ether. And so... Uh, I, I asked the question to Twitter. It's like, well, like, imagine, for example, you put in like 
50% of all the ether inside of Tornado Cash. We know exactly how much ether is in Tornado Cash. We just don't know whose it is. So I tweeted out, can some Dune analytics wizard tell me what percent of ETH in Tornado Cash this is? Because like, if the hacker puts all their ETH in tor into Tornado Cash and then your wallet withdraws ETH from, tor from Tornado Cash, you could be like, pins like, oh, maybe that's, maybe you're the hacker, right? Because so much of the ether is tainted. Uh, but as it turns out, the Ronin hack was 173,000 ether, 7.5% of that, the deposited ether from the hackers, 13,000 ether. Total ether in Tornado Cash, Ryan, 180,000. Uh, so that's about 7.5-ish percent of all Tornado Cash ether. So actually, like 7.5% 7 of that hack is actually pretty like below the threshold. There's a nice graph that actually shows the very large deposit into, into Tornado Cash. You might have it pulled it up in the next tab. So yeah, you can see all of the inputs and outputs, red, the red spikes, the, gre the, the green spikes going into Tornado Cash. And it turns out Tornado Cash has enough liquidity to hide a pretty sizable amount of ether. Uh, and so Tornado Cash is averaging 6.6 thousand ether per day in withdrawals. Uh, which is up significantly from, according to this tweet, from where it was a couple weeks ago. Um, but, uh, yeah. Well, what do you think about cash. this? Do you, do you think, like, I'm surprised we haven't heard the Elizabeth Warrens of the world, you know, talking about this, maybe Ethereum, bucketing Ethereum, the whole mix, as basically a, a money laundering protocol and see this is how criminals, you know, can escape with cash, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, pri like privacy, on-chain privacy is bad. And the chain analysis of the world Maybe they can see into this thing, but maybe they can't. Uh, what do you think about that? Ooh, it's um, privacy is a human right, um, but this is also a money laundering tool. So there's that. Mixed, right? Mixed, mixed, mixed reviews opinion. here. Techno te technology is inherently neutral. It's about how it's used. Um, but privacy as a human right comes before anti-money laundering efforts. That's you kind of, of have to, if, if you choose to prioritize privacy, then you kind of have to take the good with the bad. Isn't, yeah. isn't there just a fundamental trade-off here that yep. society mm -hmm. has? Like, and by the way, this is not a crazy trade-off. We've had this in cash forever, right. and this hasn't caused the downfall collapse of society, right? And right. There's still the ability to find these criminals mm -hmm. via other means without eroding the privacy of every individual citizen and knowing exactly what they own and exactly who they are. So it's something I feel like the crypto industry has to get stronger on, but yeah. I do also feel like it's a, it's a losing battle in the political soundbite game. We're saying when you'd right. be like, oh yeah, and then they just laundered all this money through Tornado yeah. Cash, the money laundering tool. Mm -hmm. And then pretty soon everyone who's ever used Tornado Cash just to obfuscate their identity for like legitimate reasons, non-criminal reasons, they're painted in the same brush. So right. if you're using a privacy uh, protocol at all, well, you must be a criminal. Right. rather than you just want to preserve your actual on-chain right. privacy. And uh, yeah, this is a slippery slope because then, mm -hmm. then exchanges start blacklisting any address that's interacted with Tornado yeah, Cash. Right. Mm -hmm. You can imagine something like this happening. And then the only outlet for you is decentralized DeFi-type protocols right. that have no ability to, uh, to blacklist, right? Mm -hmm. So this is why all of these things are, are very important, I think. But it's a complex subject. Yeah, Bitcoin has proof of work as its big Achilles heel in its narrative. I think privacy on Ethereum, because Tornado Cash is actually a pretty inferior form of privacy. Aztec technology, ZK Rollup, uh, which is not just, it's not, not ZK Rollup, but zero knowledge proof technology, like the Aztec layer two is going to be a completely private layer two. 
like the technology, to, the privacy tools on Ethereum are only going to get orders of magnitude better, more secure, more private, and more usable. This is going to be our narrative Achilles heel. Like this is going to be the attack vector for Ethereum is privacy. It's I think it's privacy in general, and, and yes, and Bitcoin has no privacy. In fact, I, there's there's a whole really interesting discussion. Which I don't think crypto mm. could have gotten as far as it. it it has gotten to this point mm -hmm. without like nation state kind of choking the the baby in the crib if it had privacy on the base layer. There's a reason why Monero is not on any exchange. Um, but also Lightning Network, Ryan, is private. That's a private yeah. technology. Anyway, it's a, that's definitely a, a trade-off and it, and a, something that we're going to have to um, you know, discuss with the regulators in the future. All right, guys, we're going to burn through a few more things. Uh, Near, they're launching an Algo stablecoin on the 20th of April called USN. This is going to be like UST for Terra. So other alternative layer ones joining the space there to compete for Terra. Uh, David, what's this? Uh, higher? Center, an organization consortium or a between circle between with USD and also Coinbase has hired two executives to oversee regulation operations. Uh, these are kind of one of our... Uh, our are spearheading uh, entities helping us fight the fight in regulation. So we like to see that. More regulatory firepower. Um, also Celsius. So this is a, a centralized um, lending and borrowing project uh, exchange, I guess. Uh, mm -hmm. Crypto bank, app. you might call them. Yeah, yeah app. Um, similar to BlockFi. They have now made it such that non-accredited investors in the U.S. will not be able to deposit new assets into their own account. So this happened with BlockFi in February. This is the SEC coming down on these custodial crypto lending and borrowing protocols and saying, nope, can't do that. Not here, not in the U.S., not to unaccredited investors, not to people who have less than $1 million in assets. So... Where do we go from here? We move to DeFi and also the Celsiuses and the BlockFi's of the world seek to become regulated entities so they can start doing this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, David, let's talk about some more regulatory pressure. And this is coming from an interesting place, a series of class action lawsuits. And this is a new one that dropped uh, to our attention this week. This is a class action lawsuit from a Uniswap user. Are you a Uniswap user? If you're listening to Bankless, uh, you probably are, right? You may have been in the past. This is a Uniswap user that is accusing Uniswap Labs of allowing fraudulent activity on its protocol, okay? And non-registered securities, other fraudulent uh, activity. Apparently, this user, and you can read the entire plaintiff and the, uh, the complaint, the class action complaint here. This user bought a whole bunch of Uniswap gems, right? Some might call these shit coins. In last year, last summer, so like, you know, June, uh, May of last summer, like stuff like, you know, the classics like good old Ethereum Max. Oh, I love and that one. Matrix Samurai oh, and uh, Rocket Bunny and oh, BoomBaby.io. Oh, God. Uh, and if you read the, 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 the complaint, about 10K was invested in these things. And, uh, Almost all of them went to zero, near zero, right? And so the the complaint is that Uniswap allowed this to happen. Mm. And so named in the, in the lawsuit is Uniswap, Hayden Adams, investors in Uniswap Labs like A16Z, basically everyone they could think of. Uh, this is so crazy to me, David. I'm, I have some reactions to this, but I want to hear your, yours first. What do you think about this? This feels malicious. Uh, this feels like they were doing this with intent uh, in order to like smear Uniswap, right? This is not just, in my opinion, there's perhaps a case to be made that this is not just some 
you know, innocent person who got some Uber driver tips to buy Ethereum maps, Max or Rocket Bunny, but instead are using this as a way to uh, in, get into, start targeting DeFi legally. It's not the first time we've seen this. Uh, Ryan, you'll remember a number of months ago, uh, somebody deposited $10 into Pool Together and started uh, suing, and then class action lawsuited Pool Together uh, for losing money because of the gas fee, Ryan. Not because Are they you kidding me? The gas fee? The, because yeah, they lost money because they paid the gas fee. Class action lawsuit against uh, Pool Together. This effort is still going on. Uh, now this happens. Same thing. Clax action lawsuit against some obvious. Like personally, Ryan, if I lost all my money in Rocket Bunny and I Ethereum think about my Max, life choices, I wouldn't publicize that. <laughs> <laughs> I would not. I would not go publicly with that. And so I think that there is something in insipid, in, insidious. What's what's the word? Uh, insidious. Know. Yeah. Insidious. Yeah. Going on behind the scenes. And I think this story is going to un- have, be, have to be unfolded a little bit more. You think this is a takedown, an organized I think, I think, uh, DeFi yes. takedown, possibly? Yeah, I, I think this is there's something bad going on here because uh, so like how, how can you possibly blame uniswap which is a permissionless decentralized exchange that does not control asset listings at all individuals do how can you possibly exchange they don't want to blame smart contract code the developers of smart contract code this is to me this is like you know uh blaming the developers of tcpip for what just happened here. I mean, like you may as well. Who who originally created the TCP IP protocol that all of the rest of the internet transacts on? Maybe okay. we can hold them responsible because I lost money on Uniswap. Like, or I was scammed from a Nigerian prince email or something or like that. Or somebody this. made me mad on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> it's just absolutely ludicrous. And what, what I'm worried about is that there might be some... Um, I guess court precedent that negatively impacts DeFi, and like I guess even best case scenario, man, these DeFi projects get tied up in these class action lawsuits. Anyway, that's why we do what we do. We got to talk about these uh, protocols more and, and the value of them, uh, guys. We're gonna get into some hot takes of the week, but before we do, we want to thank the sponsors that made this episode possible. All right, guys, we're back with the takes of the week. This is one from Dan Price about taxes. That's the theme of this episode, David. What's this say? Yeah, Dan Price uh, says, every other country, here are your taxes. Does this look okay? America version. TurboTax and H&R Block lobbied Congress, so you have to pay them hundreds of dollars and pull together all of the paperwork the government already has on you to file your taxes manually. Reminder that this is the state that we are in. Yes, it's sad. Sick. Uh, Everyone that is yeah. stressing out over taxes, you can thank TurboTax and H&R Block. Thank you. <laughs> as well as the IRS and Congress, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a question I've had in my mind, David, I'm going to just ask, but mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's really this question we've, we've talked about in some bankless shows, but are there going to be local or global winners for DeFi, right? And a global winner is like one kind of lending and borrowing protocol that establishes some sort of power law network effect, like say Aave, it gets deployed across, you know, all of the chains, for Polygon, example, that would be Avalanche, a, Phantom, whatever. all of the chains, right? And it'd be Aave. This is the, the winner of uh, lending and borrowing, for example, or compound or something like this. The local version of things is no, every single chain ecosystem will have its own, uh, its own automated market maker and lending and borrowing pro- protocols. So like on Avalanche, they'll have Trader Joe and on Ethereum, you might have Uniswap and on Polygon, you might have like a quick swap or something like this. This has been a big question in my mind. Cause it's like a question of how do you invest? Do you invest with the big ones or do you have to look for like winners across every single chain? So I asked this question, do you guys think there will be local winners 
or global winners. A few good responses here. The majority, the majority seemed to indicate that like global global winners would win, which was kind of my uh, inclination. But this guy, um, Hildabi, actually provided some data behind this. You want to read this tweet out? Yeah, stats following Uniswap's arrival on Polygon leads me to believe that user stickiness will lead to global winners. In my opinion, the average user sticks to what he or she is familiar with, but it will be interesting to see how things develop. And then he gives a graph uh, that shows how much how dominant Uniswap is uh, across all the DEXs on Polygon. One, core, uh, one asterisk on this is that if you're using Polygon, you're more likely to be an Ethereum user. And if you're an Ethereum user, you're likely to be a Uniswap user. Going across a different ecosystem to Solana, or Avalanche, especially Solana, because Solana is not EVM. Avalanche is EVM. Uh, like maybe there's a different taste because it's a different, a very different user base rather than just a slightly different user base. So how do you think this shakes out? I think you're right. I think I think the Uniswap branding is very very strong. Also, the technology is very very strong as well. Like Uniswap V3 is robust, right? Like it's hard to compete with that. Uh, and so I think that lends itself to global winners. I think we might have like a combo. Too. Oh, I yeah, think we'll certain, have some certainly. major, yeah. but you know how like in, in countries, right? There's like sort of the, um, you know, the, the Google of China, for example, for various reasons, um, like some countries have their own flavors of this. I think you'll mm-hmm. see some of that too, but then you'll also see some big global power law winners. Like there right. might be some geographic boundaries in these chains here that we don't see, like maybe EVM versus non EVM is one mm-hmm. of them. Mm-hmm. I think that's right. It, it'll but be interesting. Leaning, leaning towards global winners. Yeah. Uh, this like is the, the EVM Wolf. is uh, I can see like there being global winners amongst all EVM chains and all non EVM chains having their own local winners. Yeah, that's one possibility for sure. Uh, this is an Eric Wall tweet. What's he saying here? Uh, the, he's taken a screenshot and the screenshot is of other tweets. And the first person says the gas fees on Avalanche are getting ridiculous. Somebody follows that up saying, yes, a transaction previously cost me six cents and now $6 and 50 cents. That's a 10,000% increase. I'm not sure on the math on that one. Uh, and then Eric Wall retweets this saying, obviously the solution is an EVM fork, which poses <laughs> the question, what is the model of scaling that the, that the crypto industry is going to have? Every time a layer one blockchain gets full, are we going to it gets a, expensive? Gets it gets expensive. Get full. Same same. Um, are we going to a one just spin up another layer one blockchain that's an EVM fork, like another Geth fork, spin that out as blockchain, raise a bunch of VC cash, or when it, a layer one blockchain gets full, do you just spin up another layer two? Um, which model of scaling is the industry going to go in? And lots of people in this. And this is, I feel like, the question of 2021 and now going into 2022. How will the crypto industry scale? Will we put out more layer ones or will we put out more layer twos? Um, yeah. I do think that these are the two models, David. And uh, you know, I want to get to your, your post that you published this week uh, about one of the models. Um, mm-hmm. But basically, the two models are, are we going to live in this world of interconnected side chains with their own validator set? So none that are really like market dominant, just mm-hmm. a whole bunch of new side chains that we keep spinning up, all with their own uh, defense and security spend. Or are we going to live more in a world of like so, something like Ethereum, where there's one modular chain that kind of provides economic security for a whole bunch of other layer layer twos? And the dichotomy here that I've heard, which is kind of an ad- analog to the real world, is will we live in a world of like many nation states with providing their own security, or will we live in a world with empires and maybe some dominant empires? Some modular blockchains that kind of provide security for like um, 
spheres of influence, mm -hmm. if you will, territories, states, and provinces, and alliances with other countries. So you wrote about this, I think, mm -hmm. in, your, in your post, The Empire Model for Blockchains. And what's the argument that you're making? Yeah, the argument that I'm making is that if you are not playing to be the number one spot, then you are not playing. And I think the evidence for why this is going to be an empire model of a blockchain network rather than, you said nation states, Ryan, but I think the alternative model is like many, many city states. Um, and so like- Oh yes, what, that's what I meant. City yeah, states, not nation city states. City states, yeah. So like rather like one dominant like nation that blankets the whole like world with their blockchain, right? Like I think the Ethereum empire model, the many, many layer twos model is going to be the dominant one. And the, the interoperable side chains, a network of side chains where Avalanche is the side chain to Ethereum, which is a side chain to Solana, which is a side chain to Avalanche. And there's a mesh network of side chains. Like that doesn't make sense. And people know this subconsciously in the tribalism and the fighting that happens on crypto Twitter. The reason why we fight, the reason why crypto Twitter is tribal is because we all at least subconsciously, some people consciously know this, and I'm trying to get people to consciously know it, which is why I wrote the article. We subconsciously know this is true, and that's why we are tribal, because we all want to be the number one spot. We all want we, our blockchain to be the number one thing. We all know we're playing the empire game. We are all playing the empire game. Liquidity begets liquidity, capital begets capital, network effects begets network network effects, and the number one blockchain claims all of these things. And so, like, the, and there's it, this is also just completely rational when in game theory, because if you aren't, if you're fighting to be a, a good sidechain for to be interoperable with other good sidechains, you're going to lose to the blockchain that's fighting to be the empire. And there's a and we in the last six months. Over a billion dollars has been hacked, Ryan, in what? In cross-chain bridges, insecure bridges. Bridges are going to be the next big attack vector, and layer two cryptographic bridges are always going to be more secure than cross-chain multi-sig bridges. And so a, a empire model where there's one layer one with many, 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 many layer twos that come to blanket the earth is fundamentally more secure than a poly cross-chain layer one model. I think, you know, so, so first of all, I would say um, Bitcoiners acknowledge this and realize Bitcoiners this about this. Bitcoin. This is why they fight hard. I think the Ethereum community doesn't so much. And I don't think that I think they might like um, cringe a little bit in the framing mm -hmm. of this. And I yeah, think the, the reason spicy wood. I think I think the reason they do, though, David, is because they're used to empires, the, the nation state analog of like mm -hmm. empire by conquest. Like that's right. how you go build an empire in the nation state world, you have to go like conquer another set of peoples and take from them. Mm. Uh, but this is not empire by conquest. Mm. This is empire by opt in, this is empire not by conquest, um, opt in, right? And so basically the, the model is, oh, rather than spending, if I'm a side chain, you know, a question rather than spending for my own economic security and spending, by the way, I just, I have to inflate my, my token supply. Like it's really expensive. People don't look at this very often, but I know you and I look at this a lot, which is how much are chains actually spending in blockchain issuance for their security. And it's a whole lot of money to maintain that level of security. Instead of doing that, why don't I just outsource my security? Why not opt into the Ethereum Federation? Yeah, just, I'll, become, I'll just have Ethereum protect me. Yeah, and 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 you know I, I like that ecosystem anyway. I'm EVM, whatever. Like, uh, there's a lot of network effects. So let me just build that bridge, and I'll become a roll up rather than a side chain, right? It seems to me, and again, it's not opt in. No, no one in Ethereum like went and like conquered that side chain. Right. It was just basically like, oh, I'm looking at the economics of this, and I'm trying to make the rational most rational. Sense. 
decision. And so I'm going to become uh, a subsidiary of, of Ethereum. Now I do think that that model has got to be like, that's sort of the model that we've seen play, play out in the conquest world of nation states where mm-hmm. we don't have a whole bunch of Singapore's and Hong Kong's right. it's like former Hong Kong. Like we don't have a bunch of, of city states. We have some pretty dominant, uh, nation state empires. Maybe we have multiple that could also be the case and it is the case now, but there will probably be some eras and power law winners and in more like dominant empires. And I do think that is the quiet part that the Ethereum community doesn't say out loud. When you enter the, we're fighting for monetary premium game, you necessarily enter that game of like, I guess, opt-in empire building. And, and there's so much evidence as to why this is the right model, because this is the model of coordination ever since humans stopped being hunter-gatherers and we started being settlers and we actually created civilizations with property, we started this coordination game of who pays taxes to who, right? Like who who can have the monopoly on violence? And in the in the blockchain world, it's who can have the strongest security. But like, you know, in the in the physical world, a monopoly on violence is like, all right, whoever has the largest military gets to control the global reserve currency. In the blockchain world, it's whoever's whichever blockchain has the best security has the best money, uh, money properties of that layer one. Okay, I would just also say to that, though, um, what you just said, and what I just said, nine out of 10 VCs disagree with that. Yes. Yes, maybe 10 because 10. they're incentivized <laughs> for as many layer one blockchains as possible because it's VC service areas. Maybe. VC playgrounds. So, yes, that's what that's what you might say. But like, let's let's flip that around. Like, I think I think it's worth steel manning their argument. And they the basically more the steel man is they don't believe that security and like defense, economic security, of the chain is kind of the number one property. Like they would prioritize uh, user experience for example, far higher and user experience is associated with low gas fees as well. Like, and if you have to make lots of trade-offs on security, decentralization security, you know, people forget what decentralization is. Like it's good to remind people it's an anti-corruption technology. So it helps preserve, it helps keep the cancer at bay. It's like the white blood cells fighting the cancer in the spread in the body of the system. Okay. And like they'll make some trade-offs there where they'll introduce more potential for future corruption in exchange for usability. And they'll say that like that's what users actually care about. It's the user experience. It's not the security. And so it's not the highest, like pe- people don't care. You know, one VC put it this way. Um, people don't care about like what chain they're interacting with f- for security reasons. They, they care about risk more. It's like, what's the risk? And so mm-hmm. risk and security are related, but it's not one-to-one. There could be, you know, um, secure chains that have risks in other ways. And so they want to minimize risk over the long run. Uh, so I think a VC would push back on that and be like, hey, it's not actually a battle for maximum security, David. It's actually a battle for network effect and utility and user experience mm-hmm. because that's going to drive the most users and the most liquidity over the long run. Yep. Uh, and I highly, highly encourage people, please go read this article. It's one of my favorites that I've written in a long time. Uh, link in the show notes. That's cool. All right, man, those are the takes, but what are you excited about this week? You like in Brooklyn? Is that exciting? <sighs> Dude, I'm loving Brooklyn. Um, there's a, a DAO meetup that I'm going to later today uh, with just like this, Seeing just a list of the invitees, like, oh, these are all my friends. This is great. <laughs> oh, gosh. Like, I never had this in, in San Diego or really any other time ever. 
Uh, and so just going to be in where DAOs are being built, where the metaverse is being built here at the epicenter of it all, which is Brooklyn. Williamsburg is really, really exciting. Uh, there's a boys club meetup that I'm going to later today, Ryan, which is also going to be lovely. And they're at the same time. So I have to like party hop and it's a Thursday. <laughs> so that's going to be really exciting. Uh, I'm, I'm still like walking around Brooklyn, deciding what part of it I'm trying to find an apartment in. But apparently but you're definitely I'm, doing it. You're making oh, I'm move? doing it. Oh, I'm doing it. Yeah, yeah for sure. Unless, look, next week, though, you're going to Amsterdam. What if you mm. fall in love with a different city? A cool oh, place. gosh. I don't know. I, I could fall in love with Amsterdam. I still love America. Uh, <laughs> they're, they're, I mean, Amsterdam's got, got Web3 people, too, but nothing like Brooklyn and Williamsburg, right? Like, Williamsburg is the epicenter of the metaverse. It's like where the metaverse find, has its, like, link to the real world because yeah. everyone that's building the metaverse lives here. Uh, and so it's like the metaverse instantiate in, in Williamsburg. Da David's um, starting to sound like a Brooklyn maximalist here. <laughs> I never ever Ryan thought I'd ever live on the East Coast, uh, but here I am. That's funny, man. But then you also yeah off to Amsterdam on Saturday for Dev Connect. I said this a couple uh, like last roll up, probably the nerdiest conference that I'm ever going to go to. We're going to talk nerdier about than like um, than um, what's it called? Am I thinking of Ethereum conference? ETH Denver? ETH, no, no, no. DevCon. Oh well, I've never been to a DevCon. So oh, that. you haven't? No, never been to a DevCon. Yeah, are you going this year? Yeah, yeah, in Colombia in October. Okay. Uh, I will be excited for that one on a future roll-up. Um, but this roll-up is as DevConnect in Amsterdam. Going to be modular blockchain talk. There's going to be ETH staking talk. There's going to be a shared secret validator from Obel Network talk. Oh, my God. There's this going to be... I'm just going to just geek out. It's going to be great. A lot of geek energy. A lot That's of awesome. geek energy, bigly. And also going to see Anthony Sazano. It's going to be great to see him. Um, That's good. And Ryan, what are you excited about? Uh, okay, so Bankless registered for a trademark of the bankless name mm -hmm. about a year ago and we finally got that back and we have the trademark i don't have my soundboard but boop, boop, boop. i know <laughs> it's pretty cool so uh what's neat about this is i'm i'm actually when we get some time i'm excited to try some like on-chain experiments with this thing mm -hmm. right so mm -hmm. what is a trademark it's just a registration in a country in a nation state or a set of countries that no one else can use this mark uh, for a particular pur purpose. Like no one else can use the Bankless brand for mm -hmm. a particular purpose. Um, Bankless has always been somewhat of a headless brand. You know, you and I are kind of sp spearheading the movement a little bit. I'm really excited about how we could like bring this trademark maybe on chain mm -hmm. and set the DAO loose on it, right? Mm -hmm. So what if uh, you could, you know, basically create a non-revocable license for the DAO and participants of the DAO to use this trademark. So for example, what if you could create a smart contract uh, that was controlled by a snapshot vote and the snapshot vote could vote on which new entity would get rights to the trademark and, and be able to use the bankless brand or not. And you could like revoke that or approve that via a bank DAO token snapshot vote. Like how cool would that be? Or what if uh, you had to hold a certain amount of bank tokens and stake them or do something like this in order to use that use that mark, use that trademark. I don't know. There's a lot of cool things and I'm I'm excited to like because what is what is a, a trademark? It's just a it's just like a nation state uh, smart contract. It's a contract like with the nation state. And so can NFT. we tie that into yeah, it's an NFT. So we can can we create that, instantiate that on chain, create kind of a an integration layer here. So anyway. That's kind of nerdy stuff, but I'm excited to talk to some crypto smart contract experts and see what we could do there. Yeah, there, there's a lot of potential there. For those who don't know, like go to Instagram and type in Bankless. Bankless HQ will show up. 
but so will like 50 other flavors of Bankless. Bankless, Bankless France, Brazil, Bankless, Bankless Brazil. Those guys yeah. are killing it. Bankless yeah. Russia, like Bankless, like uh, Romania, like even some relatively small countries have like a Bankless. There's like, podcasts media in yeah. Portuguese, like bank under the Bankless name, all sorts of things. And mm-hmm. I would love to kind of usher them into the Bankless family, like even more right. officially through through use of this. Right. So yeah, totally. So n- n- nice, nice find, nice NFT yeah. find. It's cool stuff, <laughs> NFT. Yeah. Thank you, U.S. government. (laughs) Cheers. Uh, But you know what? Meme of the week. I guess thank you, U.S. government, again, or maybe not so much. Uh, Taxes were brutal, man. It's tax week, so we got to end with these. What's this uh, tweet that we're looking at? This is a relatively niche tweet, but it's uh, (laughs) one boxer standing up ready to go. We're like, okay, uh, all right. I'm going to file these taxes. Let's do this. And then the next scene is him sitting down drinking water. goes, damn, <laughs> filing that extension was easy. <laughs> you can get an extension to October. You mm-hmm. can file those. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but only for filing taxes, you still got to pay. Yeah, you still got to pay. You, you can't, can't file extension to pay later. That's awesome, David. I like you are schooled up on all this stuff, man. This is another. Uh, this How do is another you think IRS I did meme. this? It's amazing. <laughs> How do you think I know these things? <laughs> you've yeah, you've uh, you've been hanging out with me a little bit. I think come, I've come a long way. All right, this this next meme is coming from the Rug News. It's the Onion for crypto. You should be following it because the Twitter account is hilarious. Uh, IRS Web three community employs tax tax strategy. We're finally getting guidance from the IRS. Their guidance is, you'll figure it out. <laughs> So true. All right, guys, this has been the weekly roll-up. This somehow turned into tax week. I don't know how, but we won't be talking about taxes for at least another year, right, David? One more year, yeah. Mm -hmm. All right, we're going to leave you with uh, one final moment of zen, but before we do, got to tell you this. None of this has been financial advice. It never is. ETH and Bitcoin are both risky. So is DeFi. You could lose what you put in, but we are headed west. This is the frontier. It's not for everyone, but we're glad you're with us on the bankless journey. Thanks a lot. I wish my taxes paid my health care. I wish my taxes paid my college education. And I wish my taxes went to projects. I wish my taxes funded public transportation. And my crypto taxes drive me crazy.